The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I go back and I was thinking this week about uh, my conversion experience. I was a young man. I was, I was uh, 10 years old when I walked the aisle and, and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. And I remember saying the sinner's prayer. I remember believing that I was a sinner and I didn't have the means to save myself and I needed someone greater than myself to bring salvation. So I walked forward, I hit my knees and I, and I repeated the prayer that the pastor gave and I asked Jesus into my life. And I can remember the next night and the night after that and the next week, month and years as I would lay in bed at night, I was always worried it didn't stick. And so I would repeat the sinner's prayer every single night because I just wasn't quite sure I was saved. I didn't know that I know that I know that that God had me. And so I I say, I think I was saved like 2,000 times between 10 and 14 because every single night, like, God, I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell, so save me. I would pray the sinner's prayer. I, I didn't know that I know that I know. But then I remember somewhere along the line, I'm not sure exactly when it was, I was exposed to the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. You're probably familiar with this this quote from Christ if you've been around the church for any length of time. But Jesus is talking about the sheep that hear his voice. And I knew I was a sheep who'd heard the voice of God. I walked an aisle and I responded to the voice that I had heard. I responded to this call for salvation. But Jesus says in John 10 verses 27 through 29, he says, my sheep hear my voice And I know them and they follow me. And I knew that was me. I knew that I knew Jesus and I knew that I wanted to follow him. Then he goes on to say in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than I or than all and all and no one who and no one is able to snatch them from my father's hand. I remember reading that language or hearing that language that no one will snatch me away from God. And I started thinking about, okay, if he's God, and if he did, in fact, spin the earth on its axis, if he placed the stars in the sky, if he's the Alpha, if he's the Omega, if he's the Lord of Lords and the Kings of Kings, if he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, if he is the God of the universe, and he, and he has claimed me as his own, and I, and I am firmly within his grasp, what in the world is ever going to take me from the grasp of God? Nothing. There's nothing greater, nothing more powerful, and my neurotic need to just be, be to fearfully come to God every day and beg that maybe he, didn't, maybe he forgot that he confessed his love for me. Maybe, maybe he forgot that he saved me. That kind of started to dissipate. And the longer I walk with God, I, I continue to see how much bigger God is than I realize and how small I am. And it's just an absolute miracle of miracles that he's opened my eyes to the gospel and that he calls me his son or he calls me his child. And there's this great joy of knowing, this great joy in assurance. So as we gather and as we reflect on this book, some 30 plus times the word no is used in 1 John. John, as we've said in previous weeks, he's writing this letter to believers so, so that they might know, that they might have confidence, that they might have assurance that they're his, that he has wrapped his sovereign hands around them and claimed them as his own. Do you know this? I mean, do you know this? Do you have assurance? Where are you in this process? Sometimes in our lives as believers, we can be sort of like I was as a, as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, kind of neurotic and fearful, and, and just always obsessed and concerned and fearful that God has forgotten us, that we have fallen outside of his grasp, that he's no longer uh, loving us and he's no longer with us, and we can just have this neurotic thing and we just forget how big God is and how amazing it is that he's called us his own. We forget how strong he is. And the other end of the spectrum is sometimes... Books like 1 John invite us to consider and look strongly and heavily at ourselves and, and, and evaluate, God, how, 
Is my faith legitimate, Lord? Have I, have I authentically confessed faith in Jesus? Have I been born again? Am I, is, there, is there fruits in my life that reflect that I am a child of God? And so this letter has invited us to consider these things that we might know, that we know that we know that we are in Jesus. And so what, what I've been, kind of entitled my sermon today is simply Christians can confidently know. What John is saying in this last handful of verses in this letter is he's kind of going through a detailed list of five things in light of everything he's taught us in, in 1 John, five things that we can confidently know as Christians. He uses the word know seven times in our text today. Other words are like believe and have confidence and come to understanding and these things are true. And so John is just kind of pounding one last strong argument to his audience saying this is what you can know for sure. This is where your assurance is found. This is how you can have confidence. This is how you can know that you know that you know that you are in Christ. So what are those things? Well, I encourage you to to write down five things. The first one is this. Christians can confidently know eternal life. There's some things that we can know, and here's the first thing he talks about. Christians can confidently know eternal life. We talked about this last week. And and as we look at verse 12 and verse 13, we notice a shift in the tense. In verse 12, uh, John is talking in the second person. In verse 13, he, he switches, and now he starts talking in the first person. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this shift in tense signifies a shift in the letter. He's concluded his formal argument, and now John is kind of, he's writing his, his postscript, his benediction. And in this postscript, John yet again makes it very clear that he's writing to believers. I'm writing uh, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. His audience is Christians. And, and John says, I write these things. And it reminds me of what he said in verse 4 of chapter 1. When he said, I I am writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so he said the phrase, these things, twice on the bookends of 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 the letter. What are these things? Well, he wants to write that our joy may be complete, he says, and that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, those who have assurance that they are in Christ, those who have assurance of eternal life will have complete joy. John is has written this letter with the express purpose of providing rock-solid assurance for those who believe, that they, that they may have a confidence in their salvation, that they may know that they know that they know that they're in Jesus. I think of John's original audience. Think of what they had been through. These were people who had seen their little church split. They, they had seen a false teachers rise up from their midst, and they probably watched in horror as, as these people rose up in their midst and abandoned the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles, as they abandoned the apostolic proclamation, the, 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 the proclamation of the apostles, as they abandoned uh, Jesus and made a Jesus of their own making. They had to watch in horror as their little church split and family members and friends got up and walked out and followed the false teaching. Can you imagine how hard that would have been for these men and women? They, they likely see people they loved and, and they were begging God over their friends that had walked away from the faith to follow a different gospel. They'd endured this painful split in their community. And so John, in this letter, he's writing, and we've heard it over and over, little children, my beloved. He, he models these tender words and he calls his audience by these tender words because he's their pastor and he loves them. He wants these people who, who have believed in the name of the Son of God to know they have eternal life and to find joy in that amazing truth. He wants them to know that even though they've seen difficulty, there is a greater promise than their pain. There's a greater thing, a greater hope than the despair they may feel. There is unending joy that awaits all who are in Christ. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. 
that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you were here last week, I concluded the sermon. I asked you to close your eyes, and I tried my very best, borrowing from Sam Storms, to paint a picture of what glories await those of us that are saved. What is, what is this eternal life that John speaks of? We, 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 we closed our eyes, and we imagined this ever-increasing joy that comes for those of us that have eternal life. And it's more than just the promise of living forever. That's more than what John is talking about here when he uses the phrase eternal life. Eternal life is not just speaking to the duration of life, it's speaking to the quality of life. The eternal life that God has in store for those of us that know Jesus Christ is an unending life filled with ever-increasing joy. And you know, in this life we live with hope. Hope is, is, is an unfulfilled promise that awaits us, that keeps us going. We look with anticipation to something that will one day come. But in glory, in heaven, and in everlasting life, it's hope fulfilled in its perfect entirety. Full restoration, full healing, fully delivered from the sinfulness of this world. It's an eternal life that is reserved for those of us that are born again. Only for those who have been adopted as sons and daughters, those who will experience the redemption of the body. This is the message that First John has been telling since the very beginning of his letter. You know, it's been resonating in me. I teach this stuff, and sometimes I find when I teach and I study and I'm reading scholars and pastors that sometimes it becomes a cerebral exercise for me. I've shared this in the past. And my conviction is I don't want to come up and get behind the pulpit without having the text affected me. I want to make sure that I'm a worshiper in light of the truths that God reveals in his word before I become a teacher of his word. That doesn't always happen easily because sometimes it does feel like a cerebral exercise to put a sermon together. But as we've studied 1 John, it's kind of just, it's challenged and changed and reshaped the way I think about eternal life and the hope that we have as believers. And earlier this week, I, I had a, a, a friend on my mind from my previous community, a former congregant, and I texted him just out of the blue, hey, how you doing, buddy? And we had a little text exchange, but he, he, he told me in that text exchange that his dad had been diagnosed with stage four uh, pancreatic cancer. And we know how, um, how vicious and vile pancreatic cancer can be. His dad is a well-known pastor in the Milwaukee area. And then my friend, he said to me, I appreciate the prayers. I'd welcome your perspective on prayer over this. I've been wrestling with how to rightfully pray for my dad with authentic faith in God's healing power, but yet understanding how God's will may look different than my will. Tough balance I'm finding, he said to me. And as he said that to me, I just began thinking of what we've been learning in 1 John. And I wrote him this rather lengthy text, but the text kind of reflects what God has done in me as we've sat in this book over the last two months. I'm just going to share with you the text that I wrote to my friend Andrew. I said, the perspective God is giving me lately has been rooted in John's biblical writings. John says in his first letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And in his gospel, John says, uh, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So those are the texts that have been in my mind. So I said to my friend Andrew, we're all eternal beings, period. Those of us in Christ are promised life in his name. Of course, that life begins the, the, the moment we're saved, but won't fully be realized until glory. And as Christians, we often get caught in the trap of thinking in terms uh, of life, in terms of the years we experience on this side of the death of our mortal bodies. And so we lament at death, especially when someone dies early. But it's okay to mourn. We should mourn. But we aren't to grieve as those with no gospel hope. I continued with my friend. I said, so, so how to pray for your dad? Pray for healing. Recognize that God may choose to bring his physical healing to your dad on this side of the grave. And if he does, it's for God's glory. And celebrate it if he does. But remember, all physical healing in Jesus' name simply serves as a droplet, a puny foretaste of the ultimate spiritual healing that awaits all of us that are in Jesus Christ. 
So I said to my friend Andrew, condition your palate, and may God condition your father's palate to recognize that any and all physical healing is simply a joyful foretaste, a joyful anticipation of the life eternal that awaits all who believe. This is what I've learned as we study this letter. I said to my friend Andrew, I finished by saying, take heart, God created your dad to live eternally. It's entirely appropriate for you to ask God for more time with your dad on this side of glory, but physical healing or not, your father will live. I was reminded of the words of Jesus to Martha in John 11, where he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked Martha, do you believe this? And as I was writing to my friend Andrew, and I was thinking about eternal life and and salvation hope that we have, I believe this. This is my hope. This is our hope. I'm thankful for the effect that 1 John has had on me and for the refreshing way it has informed my perspective and it's given me assurance of eternal life. Everything that John wrote in this letter, everything that we've covered over the past seven weeks was designed to give those of us that are believing confident assurance that there may be a joyous knowing of eternal life that we experience in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? So Christians can confidently know eternal life. That's the first thing John has told us. Second thing we see as we skip ahead is we can see that Christians can confidently know answered prayer. Christians can confidently know answered prayer. Look at verses 14 and 15. John writes, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what, he, what we asked of him. The idea that Christians can be confident and bold in prayer before God is not a new concept in this letter. John's talked about it in previous sections. In chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, he said we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. That word hear that John says God hears our prayer, that means this this hearing favorably. God hears the request of his people favorably. And John makes it clear that we can confidently, as Christians, we can confidently approach God. We can ask anything according to his will. And we know that God hears us when when we offer up prayers. And if our requests align with the will of God, we know that we will have whatever we ask of him. In other words, since we know he hears us when we make our requests, We also know that he will give us what we ask for. So what does it look like to pray according to God's will? That's that's a $25 question, right? If we could just only know that. It's a common Christian experience. I'm sure you've experienced it. I know I have. To fall to your knees, to cry out to God, to beg, to lift up your request, often in lament or fear or worry, and have have your, your prayers not be answered the way you thought God would answer them. That's hard. It's common for us to make requests known to God and have them not answered in the way we would have hoped God would answer them. Even Jesus himself knew the experience of pouring out his soul before the Father in order that that he might not have to to suffer this cup of suffering. But he had to accept that what he wished, Jesus, in his humanity, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he he knew that when when he was... Asking the Father, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. He also knew that it was not his human will that won the day. It was the will of of the Father. And so Jesus said in the garden, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's what it looks like to pray according to the will of God. So too the Christian must offer in his prayers or in her prayers the same humble trust 
and a sovereign God. We, we are to say to our God before and after every request, yet not what I will, Father, but what you will. We do not know the perfect will of God for ourselves. The more we study God's word, the more we walk with Jesus, the more we sharpen one another, the more we spend time on our knees and in prayer before God, the, the more intimately we know him, of course God is going to begin to align our heart with his heart and we'll become more intimately acquainted with what the will of God is. But ultimately, it's God's will, not our will. His ways are higher than our ways. We do know that his will is perfect, however. And we do have the assurance that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, even in the most difficult and painful of experiences. I read this week that when we learn what we want God, when we learn to want what God wants, we have the joy of receiving his answer to our petitions. I love that phrase. So with confident perspective, this confident perspective that, that John gives us, then he goes ahead and he, pride, he provides for us a very practical example of what prayer can look like in the life of the believer. For chapters and chapters and chapters, John has been doing two things. He's been warning us against falling into sin, stressing that sin is the characteristic of those who are not born of God. And the other thing that he's been doing is he's been repeatedly calling Christians to love one another. To love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And both concerns of, of not falling into the sin of the world, but loving one another, seem to come together in these few verses right here. If sin is not characteristic of the Christian, and if Christians are to love one another, prayer for the fellow brother or sister in Christ caught in sin seems to be a powerful act of love lived out toward another. That will, that will lead to godliness. Look at verses 16 and 17. John says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There's a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And so the question becomes, what is a sin that leads to death? And what is a sin that does not lead to death? To answer that question, I think we need to think about the context of this letter a little bit. We remember the context. There were, there were false teachers who had, who had risen up and abandoned Jesus. The one preached by the apostles, the one witnessed by the apostles. They abandoned Jesus and they began teaching a false Christ, a false religion. And throughout this letter, John is highlighting sins that, that are characteristic of those who aren't in Christ. The denial of Jesus as the Son of God, the refusal to obey God's commandments, love of the world, hatred for one's brothers. These characteristics that John has been talking about for five chapters, they belong to those who, who live within the sphere of darkness and don't walk in light. It's unbelief. The sin that leads to death is unbelief. It's denial of Jesus. This would lead to the, the simple conclusion that by, by the sin that leads to death, John means the sins that are incapable of being uh, from a child of God. There are fruits of unbelief in this sin that leads to death. The person who willfully, willfully chooses to disobey God and, and live as the world lives, the person who willfully and deliberately chooses uh, a way uh, uh, that is counter from the way of God, that that's going to lead to death, John is saying. It's a deliberate refusal to believe in Jesus, to follow his commands, to love others. It leads to death because it includes deliberate refusal to believe in the one alone who can give life, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But by contrast, there's the sin that does not lead to death. These are those sins that believers that we get caught up in as Christians, unwitting sins, foolish sins, where we get off track, 
We're not doing it willfully as an act of rebellion, shaking our fist at God. We're not rejecting the way of salvation. We're stumbling, committing unwitting sins. And at the end of the day, we're assured as believers that we can confidently come before God. We can ask anything according to his will, and we know that God will answer our prayers. We don't do it in a vacuum. As we've been reminded in this letter, we are part of the family of God. We are to to, to live life with one another as the body of Christ. We're not to live in silos. We're to be connected and interdependent. We're to invest in one another's lives as believers. We're a family. We're We're to learn to love one another. We're to confess our sins to one another, repent in community. Our prayers are to be for one another. When a brother or sister is struggling with sin, we we are to intercede on their behalf. We're to make petitions to God on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are stumbling and who are caught up in sin. And God will answer our prayers, John says, and he'll give them life. This is one of the true marks of Christian community, the ability for us to establish the level of relationship where there is such trust, where we can be vulnerable and honest and authentic with one another. One of the true marks of Christian community is the ability we have with a a handful of others to confess and repent in the presence of another. This is how James puts it in James 5.16. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. That's, that's, That's what Christian community is supposed to look like. As I sit down with Pastor Jeremy, who's going to be coming back from sabbatical here in a couple of weeks, as we, as we dream about uh, our huddle groups and our men's ministry and our women's ministry and the affinity groups that we have, that's our dream. We call them discipleship communities. Our dream for discipleship communities is that we are journeying with Jesus together. We're gathered around the Word of God. And, and because we're pursuing Christ together, it leads to a level of, of relational connectedness and intimacy that we just don't experience in the world. And as we learn to walk towards Jesus together, we learn to trust in one another, we we can get to this point in our walk with the Lord where God has put people in our lives who know the truth about us, and we can look them in the eyes and say, brother, I'm struggling. I I need to confess something to you because I I don't want to fall into the trap of the enemy. Or we can look at a brother who we know is stumbling, and we can say, brother, out of love, sister, out of love, I, I, I need to ask you about this behavior that I'm seeing. Not to judge you, but because I love you. And I want to pray for you that you may experience life. This is the mark of Christian community. This is the hope of what we experience when we gather around the word as the family of God. This is our hope we have for discipleship communities at our church. So Christians can confidently know eternal life. They can confidently know answered prayer. The third thing we see here is that Christians can confidently know victory over sin. Christians can confidently know victory over sin. Look at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. John makes a bold claim here. He reiterates something that was stated earlier. That no one who has been transformed, who has been born again, no one who has been saved by God, can live in a willful pattern of unbroken sin. We are to walk in victory, not slavery, as the children of God. And those who are not born again, those who don't know Jesus, well, they can do nothing but sin. I'm, I'm reminded of the words of David in, in Psalm 51 as he was kind of you know, confessing the sin before the Lord after he sinned with Bathsheba. And in verse 5 of, of Psalm 51, he said, Surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me? Before, the, before Jesus invades your life and before we're born again, people are our slaves to sin. They're defiant and rebellious haters of God. They're under the dominion of Satan. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. That was all of us before God opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. But the one who's born of God, according to John, cannot live willfully and deliberately and purposefully in an unbroken pattern of sin. Every follower of Christ struggles with sin. We know this. This is just the reality of what it is to be human on this side of glory. And the life of the believer is marked, it should be marked by a daily confession of sin, of putting sin to death, of giving our sin to Jesus, that he can nail it to the cross. Repentance as we turn away from sin, as God slowly forms you and me more and more into the image of his son Jesus. And then one day, for all of us that believe that battle with sin will end and we'll stand in the presence of Jesus and he'll wipe every tear from our eye and, and, and sin will be put to death forever. So John's statement here that the child of God does not sin is at once a promise and a demand. It's a promise that one day sin will be put to death. Not by our morality or our ability to live righteously, but through Jesus. It'll be fully put to death. So it's a promise. But it's also a demand. We as believers, as we seek to walk with Jesus on this side of glory, we are, we are to put sin to death. We are to confess and repent and pursue Jesus. The credibility of a person who, who confesses Jesus is to be rightly called into question if they confess Christ as Lord and yet willfully walk in unrepentant sin. That's antithetical. You can't be a child of God and, and walk boldly in unrepentant, unbroken sin. They don't go together. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, John says. And he goes on to say, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. In other words, uh, for God's son holds God's children securely and the evil one cannot touch them. When you and I are born into the family of God, he wraps his sovereign hands around us and nothing is going to pluck us from the hand of God. It reminds me of what I read in Romans 6, verses 17 through 22. Paul writes, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to, lawless leading to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now as children of God, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Verse 20 in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul continues. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. The unredeemed are slaves to sin. The redeemed are, are slaves to righteousness. Anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Our lives as Christians on this side of eternity, of course, are marked with this battle. A thousand confessions, a thousand days of repentance, 
And sometimes when, when God makes a sin uh, available or aware, he, he brings conviction of the Spirit, sometimes there's a miraculous deliverance. And my guess is if we were to just start talking with one another, there are many in this room who can say, God miraculously delivered me from this addiction or this habitual sin pattern. God still does that. He still miraculously delivers people from the sins that afflict them. My experience as a Christian has been more often than the miraculous deliverance is the daily confession and repentance and willful obedience to God. It's this, it's this journey uh, of pursuing Christ marked by a thousand confessions and a thousand days of repentance, sanctification through the Holy Spirit, growing slowly into the likeness of Jesus. Here at Heritage, we've defined a disciple in a very simple way. We believe a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, someone who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and someone who is leading others to follow Jesus. And so as we look back over the lifetime of following Christ, there ought to be this trajectory. Not just a credible confession, but a transformation that's taken place over years as God molds us more and more into the likeness of his son. And then a desire to engage with others and lead others to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple does. That's why I'm an advocate of journaling. Because sometimes I think if you're like me, because I've told you before I operate in a shame paradigm, I can just get so down on, on my failures. I can just focus on the shortcomings of today and feel like, and I, and I tell myself the lie sometimes, like, man, you haven't grown an inch. You're such a fraud. Same sins you've been struggling with since you were a teenager, still struggling with. What is wrong with you, Paul? And I, I can get caught up in that pattern. But one of the awesome things about journaling or having brothers and sisters walk alongside you is they can remind you, no, 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 that's not true. Read this journal entry from 10 years ago. Read it where you were then, and, and then you can begin to see the hand of God at work in your life, bringing about godliness and sanctification as he shapes us and forms us more into the son, in, in the image of his son, as we begin to see how God has given us victory over sin through the course of our life. And so Christians can confidently know eternal life and answered prayer and victory over sin. The fourth thing we see in our passage is that Christians can confidently know spiritual security. Christians can confidently know spiritual security. Look at verse 19. Paul says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is kind of his second declaration. And in it, there's this reminder of the fact that mankind is divided into two camps. Those who belong to God and those who belong to the evil one. The goats and the sheep. John is speaking uh, of a reality that is true for him and his readers. It's a very personal note that he makes here at the first part of verse 19 when he says to his audience, and he includes himself in the statement, he says, we are children of God. He knew them. This was his congregation. These were his people. As someone who is a child of God, John, John has believing readers, and he claims the promises made to those who are born of God. I think about us gathered here today, those of us that have come to faith in Jesus, that are born again. We are children of God. How awesome that we can know that. You and me, those of us who have confessed Christ as Lord, we are children of God. Even as the whole world around us is under the control of the evil one, we can confidently know in the midst of just carnage that we belong to God. This is not our home. We are sojourners here. We are foreigners here. We are alien here. Our citizenship is in heaven. But what does it mean that the whole world is under the control of the evil one? The whole world. Scriptures talk about Satan as being the ruler of this world or the, the, the prince of the power of the air. So the whole world is under the control of the evil one? What does that mean? Well, it means the whole world. 
politics and economics and education and entertainment and, and formalized religion. It's all under the control of the evil one. It lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world then, necessarily, if it's in control of the evil one, the whole world then, outside of those that are born again, outside of the church, is opposed to God. And it's opposed to those who authentically belong to God. Remember what Jesus said? If they hate you, remember they hated me first. Do you remember what John said earlier in this book? He said, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And so as believers, we, we are going to experience that. Now, I know we've talked about this in this series, that we haven't experienced a tremendous amount of persecution in our country. We've been blessed, been very lucky, been very fortunate. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight to preserve the freedoms we have as Americans. We should. But the reality is the world hates us. And the world hates Jesus. And it's going to hurt. It's going to get worse. As believers, we, we are going to experience ever-increasing levels of that hostility. To be in the world and not of it is uncomfortable. It's painful. It's scary. But we can take heart because nothing's going to pluck us from his hand. When we were kids, my dad and my mom, when my, we got out for the summertime, my dad was always logging somewhere in Montana or Idaho. They would take us camping, and we would pull our, our old Terry camper trailer, a 28-foot trailer out in the middle of nowhere. Never had a generator, uh, never had a working bathroom, but we just lived basically in this, this hard shell tent in the middle of nowhere as my dad would go to work, and we'd just kind of play and build forts. And, and at nighttime, we'd always have campfires, and we were always in the middle of nowhere, usually in the Locksaw or you know, somewhere up in north, northwestern Montana. And we'd sit around the campfire at night. It was one of my favorite things in the world. I loved my summers. And it'd be dark. And we'd be in the middle of nowhere. And we'd be sitting around the fire. And you'd hear a stick break in the darkness. And it's like, and as a little kid, you just imagine what it was. It was always a grizzly bear or a Bigfoot. One of the two. It was always a grizzly bear. And it was terrifying. And little did I know that my dad would grab rocks when he weren't looking and throw them just to scare us because I was my dad. But like... We'd start hearing cracking sticks, and, you know, I was the youngest of, 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 my, of all my siblings, but you know what? It would get scary enough where it, within, we all, my dad, in my mind, my dad was, was King Kong and Davy Crockett and the whole, like, just nothing could beat my dad. Like, he was, like, all, this all-powerful entity. And so when I would hear a stick break in the darkness, I would run to him, and I'd be on his arm, and my sister would be behind him, my mom, my mom would be sitting on his lap, and we'd all be gathered around my dad. Or he would do that, and we'd be sitting around the fire. My dad did this all the time, and we'd all be sitting around. Maybe we hadn't heard a lot of sticks breaking yet, but my, my dad would do the, the whole, like, well, I suppose he'd get up to go to bed, and we'd all be like, yeah, I guess I'm tired too. We're going inside with my dad because I don't want to get abducted by a Bigfoot. But this idea that, like, I just, you know, my naivety as a little boy, believing that my dad was, you know, was omnipotent, I just had this confidence that if I was near my dad, that nothing could get me. No matter how scary it was, no matter how dark the darkness got, and I just believed that nothing could get me. And that's kind of the picture that we're given here. That as believers, we have the spiritual security. We belong to him. And even if the world gets crazy, think of the apostles. What, I mean, think of it. I mean, 11 of the 12 were martyred, died. They said, yeah, do what you want, Roman Empire. You want to throw me to the lions? Whatever, throw me to the lions. You want to nail me upside down on a cross? Nail me upside down on a cross. You want to throw me from a tower? Boil me in oil, whatever. I saw the risen Christ. I put my finger in the holes in his hands, in the hole in his side. He defeated death. I watched him ascend. You can't do anything to me that my my Lord hasn't overcome. This light momentary affliction is nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits all who are in Christ Jesus. I consider the words of Paul in Romans 8, where he says all these things 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul says, I think I shared this last week. Paul said, for I I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things unseen nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the truth. And so John tells us, he's encouraging us. Christians can confidently know some things. What can you know? Well, you, can, you can know you have eternal life. You, you can know you have answered prayer. You can know you have victory over sin. You can know you have spiritual security. And lastly, he tells us that Christians can confidently know that Christ, we can confidently know Christ as the true God. Christians can confidently know Christ as the true God. The entire world is under the control of Satan. And if that's the case, it begs the question, if the entire world has been under the control of Satan, how can anyone find their way from the dominion of darkness into the light? How could the church ever come into existence if Satan is control is in control and if he's actively working to suppress the truth? Well, John gives us the answer here. The answer is Jesus. God's Son has come into the dark world as the light, the eternal light. He's brought understanding of the truth. As a result, you and I can know the one who is true. We can know God. Look at what it says in verse 20. It's an incredible statement, how he concludes this book. It's incredible. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Left to himself, mankind cannot forge a path forward to find God or eternal life. We need help. Mankind needs revelation from God himself. That's who Jesus is. He left heaven. He became flesh. The light of Christ pierced the darkness of this fallen world. And as verse 20 explains, God sent his own son to be the revealer of truth. And all who accept this revelation come to know God. This is the amazing truth of the Christian message. Those who accept this revelation don't just have an intellectual agreement with some theological truths. They are said to be in the true one. Look at that middle statement. We are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. To be in Christ is to be in the Father also. John has presented this image of of the Father and the Son throughout the whole letter. The Father and the Son are so closely joined to each other that the Father cannot be known apart from the Son nor the Son known apart from the Father. And the revealer of all this truth is Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that the only way to know the true God is through belief in his Son. I read this week that to know Jesus is to know the God of creative life-giving, other-centered love. And then one last time, John hammers home his point. The last phrase before this last little, he says, he is the true God and eternal life. This echoes the very words of Jesus that we've all heard if you've been in the church. John 14, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, if you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So this is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This has been an unfolding story since Genesis chapter 3 when God looked at Satan and he said, one day Eve is going to have a seed who is going to be born. He's going to crush your head. Sin is going to be overcome. Death is going to be defeated. This redemptive plan that God put into motion in Genesis chapter 3 sees its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And this sovereign plan of creator God can, can, 
God makes it available to you and to me. We can sit here under this awning in Medford, Oregon in the year 2021. We're going to go home and do whatever we're going to do. God knows everything about you in this sovereign plan of, of, of redemption to redeem all mankind, to, to, to redeem the earth, to overcome sin and death. God makes it available and knowable to you and me gathered in this room today. He, he extends an offer uh, of salvation that you and I can be born again today. This is the miracle of the gospel. And then he finishes with this seemingly peculiar verse, verse 21. This last little thing. He says, dear children, dear children, keep yourself from idols. It just felt odd to me when I read this letter initially. Like, why would he say that? Because it seems like verse 20 is an awesome crescendo. Why add that little, little, little P.S. at the end? By, By the way, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Well, then it makes sense to me once you consider the whole letter. Remember the people left because they, they, they grabbed hold of an idol. They abandoned the witness of the apostles and the proclamation of the apostles. They, they created a Jesus of their own making, and they cling to that idol and led many astray. So John is saying the truth has been revealed. Remember what he said in his opening? I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. Jesus Christ, the living God. I've witnessed him, and I'm writing about him that you might know him and have life in his name. The truth has been revealed. This is the apostolic witness. This is the apostolic proclamation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And John is begging us, and God is begging us through John to cling to this truth. Don't turn to idols. Don't turn to a Jesus of your own making or a Savior of your own making. We make horrible saviors. Resist any temptation to remake this God in your own image. Cling to Jesus. The same Jesus that John clung to. The same Jesus that ascended on the Mount of Olives. The same Jesus that's sitting on the throne of heaven today. The same Jesus that's going to return one day and usher in a new kingdom. There's no other pathway to God. Jesus is the only way. Apart from Jesus, there is no understanding of the truth and no real power to live according to the truth. And it's a ridiculous, unbelievable, and amazing miracle, a supernatural act of divine grace that you and I get to hear this truth today. And we get to respond to it. Jesus Christ is the true God, and he is the way to eternal life. So when you come to him, you can confidently know some things. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we can confidently know some things. We, we can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God answers our prayers. We can know that we have victory over sin and we have security, spiritually speaking. And then we can know that Christ is the one true God. Do you know this? I mean, do you know this? Have you come to him? I mean, the, the Bible's pretty clear. I found myself in Romans a lot this week as I thought about this, this text and what it means for us to know. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and and come short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us are sinners. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's amazing act of love was he looked down at humanity. He saw the, the, the brokenness, the sinfulness of humanity. He saw that death was the destiny of humankind if there wasn't a divine intervention. And so God enacted his plan of redemption. He sent his son, Jesus. And I thought about this. This is crazy to me that, 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 that God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this. There's never been a moment in your life. God is sovereign. He's, om, he's omnipresent, right? He knows all things. He knows the, the beginning from the end. He knows every breath you've ever breathed, every breath you ever will breathe. He knows all of it right now. And there's never been a time in his, in his existence where God has looked upon you and covered his mouth in horror and said, I cannot believe what he just did. I cannot believe what she just did. It's never happened. God saw you in your broken totality and he still chose to send his son to the cross for you. That's love. It's incredible love. 
For the wages of sin is death, and you and I deserve death because we are all sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glorious standard, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6.23. What an amazing truth. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the amazing thing that God has invited us into. All of us, every one of us. I know many of you in here have been in the church your whole life. You're like, yeah, Paul, I know this. I know this is the truth. But this is the gospel. It ought to renew our faith day in and day out. We have to renew our faith. Like, God, thank you that you have saved and redeemed me. But some of you here might not know this truth. What does it mean for us to be saved? Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's pretty simple. He said, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Later on in Romans 10, 13, Paul writes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you believed in this Jesus? This Jesus that John preaches? Have you confessed him as Lord? Do you believe that he defeated death and he's alive today? If you do, you're saved. You're born again. You have all the promises that we just went through. For those, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, we have been justified through faith. Romans 5, 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. So do you know this? I hope you know this. If you didn't know this before today, you know it now. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful that you make yourself known to us. God, you don't, you don't hide, you don't, you don't hover off in the distance and make yourself difficult to come to know. God, you've made yourself known to us. Jesus, you became flesh, you dwelt among us. You made a way, Jesus, that we, that we might be forgiven and born again and brought into the family of God and given an eternal inheritance. That's an amazing truth. God, thank you that, that you've allowed us to know that truth. God, my, mindful, my mind today is here for, for both the, the believer and the seeker, God. The believer, God, I pray that as we, as we just kind of, as we focus again on the truth of the gospel, this amazing love, God, would it rejuvenate us, God? Would it allow us to put our sins to death today, to confess, to repent, to continue to be, to be shaped and formed more into the image of your son, Jesus, God? Continue to sanctify and make godly the saints who worship at Heritage Christian Fellowship. God, I'm mindful of the men and women here or the children here who may have never come to a point in their life where they have confessed their knowledge to you. They've never come to a point in their life where they have come to a saving confession of faith. God, I just pray that as we consider what you have done for us, God, that we just have a simple prayer. For those of us that have never believed, God, there'd be a simple prayer that would say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you lived a sinless, spotless life and that you died in my place that you, Jesus, you bore my sin that I wouldn't have to die apart from God. Jesus, you defeated death. You're alive today that I could be born again into the family of God. I believe that to be true, God. Would you forgive me? You are the one true God. God, may I be born again into your family. Fill me with your spirit, God. Make me the man. Make me the woman you want me to be, God. May I walk as you want me to walk all the days of my life for your glory and not my own. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.